Chad uh, was right, My uh, the president of the college, Jim Tillotson, I, when Chad asked me to come speak, I knew that it, it was also our week of in-service, which actually technically starts today, and so I'm missing all of today. And I um, asked our president, he said, hey, this, this sounds like a good thing, good opportunity for ministry. Um, I'd like you to go ahead and do that. For me, the choice you know, wasn't that hard. I know you imagine faculty meetings, that they are just so much fun. I know you guys are like, man, why can't I be on a Bible college faculty and have that much fun? All those meetings about you know, cool subjects like grading and you know, how to use the online portal and all those things. Just, it's really, it is a wild ride, I have to tell you. Um, and so for me, that or coming to camp, it was really a tough decision. Just, I don't know. Um, I think I made the right one, though. Um, so, um, I, I thought I'd start this morning by, um, I, I think politicians give us a lot of great examples of repentance. I'm sorry. <laughs> I said that wrong. I think politicians give us a lot of bad examples of repentance. And I have a couple stories here that I thought, you, you won't even know these people, but um, I just thought this was kind of interesting. So I, I'm going to read these. These are, these are news stories um, about mistakes politicians have made and how they've... Uh, I, I just want you to kind of listen for some of the things that we've talked about, and they're, they're so obvious here. So State Representative Matt Lepresti issued an apology to constituents for removing an opponent's campaign flyer from a constituent's door in Iwa Beach recently. I guess this is in Hawaii. Lopresti made the apology on his Facebook page Friday afternoon after Alice Malafuti, his Democratic primary opponent for the state Senate 19th District seat, and others posted a video taken from the property security camera showing him pulling a brochure from the door crack and tucking it under his own materials just before the resident opens the door. He issued an apology on Facebook. This is what he said. Political campaigns can be intense and emotions can cloud otherwise good judgment of even the best people. I wonder who he thinks the best people are in that. <laughs> Just wondering. I sincerely apologize and have deep regret over my having taken some of those flyers. What that video does not show, however, is that the very same day I returned flyers that were taken, and that person's neighbors can attest to me coming back and hand-delivering my opponent's flyers the same day, which is great. I was ashamed of stooping down to the level of those who had been making false statements, stealing my banners, and removing my own flyers for weeks up to that day, but it's still no excuse for stooping to their level. I don't know if you realized that he actually is above the type of people that would normally do that. The word stooping is what indicates that, so he used it twice. Um, I strive to hold myself to a higher standard every day in my public and private life. I failed that standard that day, but I immediately tried to make it right and do the honorable thing. We all fail sometimes. My failure was caught on camera, but I've been ashamed of what I had done since the day it happened. I'm grateful for this opportunity to come clean and admit my own failures and promise to my family, my friends, my opponent, and to my community to keep on the high road in the future no matter how negative a campaign gets or how clouded my emotions become. Now. Honestly, the fact that he did take the stuff back is, is, is a wonderful thing. And, and if, if what he had done, however, was, was just say, yeah, I should never have done that. I should not have done that. Um, but instead, he pointed out, hey, I, I tried to fix it, and I also was, you know, other people were doing bad things to me, and I got emotional. And 
you don't have to be a Christian to read an apology like that and think that's not very sincere. I mean, unbelievers recognize that, right? Let me give you another one. I know, it was hard. I mean, I had to comb Google to find two examples of politicians who were not very repentant. It was hard, but I found, I found another one. Um, there was a political candidate in Florida that claimed that she graduated from Miami of Ohio University. So some reporter checked on this, and she didn't. So she produced a picture of her and her mom sitting on a couch with a framed diploma from Miami of Ohio University and a transcript of her grades. Only both were fake, the diploma and the transcript. Her diploma had the wrong administrator's signature on it. It claimed a degree program the school did not even offer. And it wasn't in the same style as diplomas from the mid-90s. You'll be happy to know that when confronted with undeniable evidence that she was lying, she admitted it and decided to stay in the race. Her apology read in part this, it was not my intent to deceive or mislead anyone. I made a mistake in saying that I completed my degree. What I did was wrong and set a bad example for someone seeking public service. I'm staying in the race and intend to win and lead by example from now on. I love that first line. It was not my intent to deceive or mislead anyone. One snarky report I read said there was no word on what her intent actually was. <laughs> I think when you produce a fake diploma and a fake transcript, and then you drag your mom into it, <laughs> that you only have two intents, and that is to deceive and mislead everyone. Um, you don't do that except to lie to people. It's a terrible apology. She ultimately dropped out of the race, but apparently without ever owning her sin. Well, we've talked about it all this week. Um, those are some bad examples. Um, but just for a reminder, uh, and again, if you'll, if you'll raise your hand just because it's easier for me to hear if I can focus on the person who's speaking. Um, it, it, uh, just for a reminder, how do you know when someone is repentant? How could you tell? What would be signs of repentance in your own life or in someone else's life? What would be signs of repentance? Yes. Change behavior, okay, yep, absolutely, change behavior. We'll talk about that a little bit today. Yes? Making what? Making the wrong right, okay, yep. Sometimes we call it restitution, but whatever it, whatever it takes to make that wrong right. Yes? Genuine sorrow, absolutely, good, good. I'm sorry? Being specific, I'm sorry, okay, yeah. Being specific, I'm sorry, I got old ears, I don't know what to tell you, so... Being specific, okay? Anyone else? Thought I saw some other hands. One in the back there, yes. Not blaming others, okay? I know, that was weird. Um, those two examples were just unique in that way. Most of us, you know, never want to blame others, right? I mean, we're, we are just scot-free on that. No, I, the truth is we all think that in our particular case, there's a little bit of context that people need to know why I sinned the way I did. And that context normally involves it with someone else. Um, not blaming others is a good sign of repentance. Good. Any others? Yes? Yeah, you admit to all of what you did. You, you, you've actually thought about it enough that you're, you're not just giving a little, a little, you know, little pie-shaped wedge of what it is, you, you, the whole circle of what you did. Good. Good. This is good. You guys have been listening this week. Thank you. That's great. Let's, uh, um, 
Let's think about it in, in a, another way. Uh, uh, Jonathan Lehman has a book on, on church discipline, and he actually asks this question. How do you know when someone is repentant? And he says this. Um, a few verses before Jesus' instruction in Matthew 18 about church discipline, he provides us with help for determining whether an individual is characteristically repentant. Would the person be willing to cut off a hand or tear out an eye rather than repeat the sin? Now, he's quoting Matthew 18, 8 through 9, which says this, And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. So then he goes on to say this. That is to say, is he or she willing to do whatever it takes to fight against the sin? Repenting people typically are zealous about casting off their sin. That's what God's spirit does inside of them. When this happens, one can expect to see a willingness to accept outside counsel, a willingness to inconvenience their schedules, a willingness to confess embarrassing things, a willingness to make financial sacrifices or lose friends or end relationships. That passage sounds kind of severe, doesn't it? pluck out an eye, cut off a hand. Maybe it sounds severe to us because we're so used to playing around with our sin and thinking we're repentant. We play around with it. The Apostle Paul talks about repentance in 2 Corinthians 7. That's where we're going to be today. You can, you can turn there, 2 Corinthians 7. This is a great New Testament passage on repentance. Probably when we started talking about the series, some of you actually thought about this passage. Um, you, you remember that the Corinthian church was messed up. Um, that's why Paul wrote, he actually wrote, there's two letters that are contained in scripture, but he wrote three, maybe four letters to them. Um, uh, two of them were not canonical or not, not inscripturated, um, but we have the two that are here. And, and the problems were you know, notorious there. Um, one of them, the, the famous one, of course, is that a young man was sleeping with his stepmother. Um, and we're pretty sure that that's what's going on there because Scripture says, you know, Paul says you're sleeping with your father's wife. That's an odd, thing, odd way to talk about your mom, obviously. So it's not his mom, it's his stepmom. Um, and he was, he was sleeping with his stepmother, which, which obviously adultery, an egregious sin, terrible sin, um, and, but what was worse was the church was acting as if, man, we are, we are so amazingly tolerant that we can have someone like that in our congregation and we don't, we don't judge them. Really um, quite relevant for the way some churches are handing, handling some sexual sins today, unfortunately. Um, and Paul said, no, you, you should have, you should have actually mourned. You shouldn't have rejoiced that you had this person in your congregation and you, and you allowed that to continue on as if there was no big deal, you should have, you should have mourned. So that was, that was one. Another one in the church was um, they were having a, a meal at, as they celebrated the Lord's Supper. And th this is a time of extremes of poverty and, and wealth. And so there were people in the congregation who could not, they didn't have food to bring to this. And then you had other people in the congregation who were very well off, and they had plenty of food, but they would not share it with other people in the congregation. They obviously were not Baptists. They didn't understand a potluck. I mean, I don't, that's, 
that's like what we do. I mean, we all know that. Um, but but they it, so so instead of this being a unifying ordinance, which is what the Lord's Supper should be, um, it was this divisive thing in the congregation. So Paul rightly confronts them about their sin in First Corinthians. Um, they made some changes. And Second uh, Corinthians, he talks about what this repentance looked like in their lives. And so we see that. We see what does repentance look like, the characteristics of repentance first. That's 11 through 13 in Second Corinthians 7, the characteristics of repentance. Repentance, uh, a short definition for us that we've, we've you know, talked about is, is a change of mind that results in a change of behavior. The emphasis is on the lifestyle change that results from repentance. Without behavioral change, it's not really repentance. One pastor said it this way, repentance isn't simply wanting change, it's doing change. All of that, of course, empowered by the Spirit, um, by the grace of God, but it's not really repentance if we don't change. So what do we see here? What are the characteristics of repentance in 2 Corinthians 7? The first one we see is sorrow over sin, or we can kind of summarize that as pain. Repentance is hard and painful, and anyone that tells you differently is wrong. I mean, look at how Paul describes his emotions and the Corinthian church's emotions in verses 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians 7. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us." So Paul had no pleasure in their pain just for pain's sake. He didn't enjoy inflicting that, but it was necessary for their reconciliation. He couldn't have dealt with their sin without making them uncomfortable. So telling someone what he or she needs to hear, even if it makes him or her sad, is not something to regret. And Paul says that actually prevents further loss. Sorrow over sin is characteristic of repentance. Sorrow over sin doesn't necessarily mean that you're, that you're weeping over it. Um, you know, for some people, that's just not, not their, their personality. Um, but it is more than regret. Regret and repentance are not biblical synonyms. And so we, I, I think somebody mentioned this early on, and I told you we were going to eventually get to this. So how does regret differ from repentance? A person might have regret about something they did. How is that different from repentance? What would, what would we see as differences there? Yes. Okay, regret doesn't always lead to change, does it? Yeah, absolutely. Good. Good. Yes. Yeah, regret is often sorrow that you got caught. Um, that that you're you're embarrassed by your actions, but not not because they displeased the Lord or they weren't honoring to Him, but because other people might think less of you now, or they know who you really are. Absolutely. What might be other differences between regret and repentance? <clears throat> yes? Regret could be that I'm, uh, I have to deal with my consequences now and I regret that. Yes, yes, absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, the, the fact that I'm, I don't like the fact that I have these consequences in my life because of what I did. Um, uh, it, that's, that often is a sign of regret, not repentance. Because the truth is, when I'm truly repentant, I'm willing to accept the consequences, whatever those may be, because I just want to be right. And I know that that's who I actually was, that I was that sinner. 
and in some ways may still be as I'm growing. Good, good. Other thoughts? Anyone else? Yes? Yes, yes. So um, self-centered, I think, is right. Often regret is focused um, horizontally. What do people out here know about me or think about me, about me, 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 as opposed to vertically where I'm actually concerned of how I've failed my Savior, my Lord and Savior. Good, good. Other thoughts? Probably, um, you know, if you thought about the last time one of your kids said they were sorry, you could come up with some characteristics of regret versus repentance, right? Sometimes our, our little kids are not very, very good at figuring out, they're not very repentant sometimes. Um, sometimes you can still see it in their face, the stubbornness there. Um, they just don't like the fact that you called them out on what they did wrong. Um, any biblical examples of a sinner that had regret but not true repentance? So I'm thinking of Bible characters. What are some biblical examples of a person who had regret but not re- repentance? Nathan? Huh? Yeah, Judas. So in Matthew 27, 3 through 5, um, then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. There's no indication, obviously, that Judas ever trusted Christ. He didn't. Um, he had regret, but he did not have repentance. Anyone else in Scripture? Yes. Huh? Abraham, what, what situation are you thinking of? Yeah, I, 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 I kind of think a little bit, um, an example I think of from Abraham's life is maybe when he, he lied about his wife being his sister, and then Genesis records that he did it a, a second time, which would kind of indicate that maybe the first time he wasn't very repentant. So that's kind of the one, that, that's one that I think of when, when it comes to Abraham. Yes? Yeah, so we're talking one of the kings of, of, of Israel. Is that what we're thinking about here? Yeah, I'm, 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 I, I, I yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I, 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 I remember the story. I don't remember exactly which, which king that was where, and I, I think one of the things he says in that situation is, well, at least I'll have peace in my time, which doesn't sound very repentant. Like, hey, your, your kids are going to have problems, but hey, at least it's okay in my day. Um, that doesn't sound very repentant. Good. Back there. Yeah. Yeah, Cain is definitely not an example of repentance. He was ticked that God wouldn't accept his sacrifice um, and obviously went out and uh, killed Abel. So, yes. Yeah, Joseph's brothers. And it's interesting, it takes years. I do think towards the end of Genesis, um, you know, one of the reasons why Joseph, maybe it looks like he's playing games in there where he's not identifying himself, but he really didn't want to find out where his brothers were like, whether they had changed. And it does seem, Judah has a testimony in there that it seems like Judah at least recognized that what they did to their brother was wrong. But for a long time, you're right, no repentance. I mean, they go back and tell dad, hey, is this the coat of many colors? I mean, we found it. And they don't care how this affects their dad. Um, And they they don't come clean. 
So you're right. Excellent. Yes. Hmm? Jonah, yeah, yeah. And Jonah is such an interesting book in the Old Testament. So you've got, I mean, obviously, Jonah and the whale, that's a, that's a, when you're a kid, that's like the most interesting aspect of it. Um, but he, you know, he, he's, he's not going to go to Nineveh. Then God gets him there by, you know, whale. And then at the end of the book, they repent. The city repents. And Jonah is upset about that. And what's fascinating is the book of Jonah ends right there. God, God talks to him about it, but we don't have any indication um, whether Jonah actually ultimately repented or not, which is kind of a, you know, we like that nice resolution, but the book doesn't have that. It's really, really interesting. Yes, one more. King Saul, King Saul absolutely, did not repent. We, we looked at him the other day, and he, you know, throughout his ki- uh, kingdom, he just got a massively inflated head, um, and, and never really repented. Uh, Esau was another one who didn't repent. Remember, um, in Hebrews, the, the author of Hebrews actually says about Esau that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Even though he had tears, he wasn't ultimately repentant. Um, it was remorse, not repentance. Some sorrow doesn't lead to repentance. Sorrow over sin is characteristic of repentance, but if it's true repentance, it will lead to change like it did in the Corinthians' lives. God uses sorrow to bring repentance. So one of the characteristics of repentance, and this is something you need to identify in your, in your own life, I think it's easier for us to look at our own heart and see if, if I have godly sorrow. Um, when you and I wake up to our sin, it should crush us emotionally, Without that painful sorrow, you'll just try to rearrange some superficial things so that you can get people off your back because you don't really believe it's as bad as they say it is. So sorrow over sin or pain is one of the, one of the characteristics of repentance from this passage. Another one is hatred of sin. In verse 11, um, Paul starts talking about specific characteristics of repentance that should be true of you and me. And one of those words here is indignation. It's a word that means strong opposition and displeasure against something wrong. Outrage over your sin. A repentant person hates the sin they previously loved. Do you hate your sin? I mean, it makes it easier to resist its call if you hate it. That's what repentance means. If you don't hate your sin, then you're not repentant. I'm not talking about hating the consequences of your sin as we talked about. Most of us hate that. Even unbelievers hate that. But you must hate the sin itself. Until you do, you aren't repentant. I believe that's often the problem with sexual failures with, with uh, Christians who struggle um, with, with immorality in various ways. They, we, we repeat those because we don't hate our sin. We actually love it. We don't really hate it. Um, hatred of sin, I think, is really important. Do I actually hate this sin? Uh, do I hate what this is doing to me? what it does to my family? Do I hate how this grieves the Holy Spirit? Does that really bother me? Is that on, on your radar at all? Do I hate this sin? I, I think, uh, you know, obviously a, a sin that is just an epidemic in our world is pornography. Um, you know, my wife works as the assistant dean of women at uh, Faith House Bible College, and 
when she was in Bible college, you know, we, we were there years ago, um, long before the digital age, and um, she she would say, I didn't, I wouldn't have known any girl that struggled with pornography. Wouldn't, I would never even, I mean, that it just, because in order to struggle with pornography, you actually had to find a magazine somewhere um, or you had to go buy it, and guys apparently were more willing to do that. Um, but now, it's probably, um, you know, 60, 40 guys and girls who struggle with it, maybe, maybe 55, 45, as far as percentage goes. Um, as far as of those who struggle with pornography, what percentage are guys and girls? Um, and I think we, we, the reason why we can struggle with that, one of the reasons, many reasons, but one of them is because we don't actually hate it. We, we see this person on a digital screen and we don't, we don't actually think about them and their soul. What is this doing to them? You know, that's someone's daughter. That, that, couldn't have been, that couldn't have been their parents' idea for their future, that they would act in these types of movies or, or engage in this, allow themselves to be photographed in these ways. We, we don't hate what it does. We don't hate how it destroys um, the intimate relationship between a husband and wife, that they can have struggles there because of um, a husband or a wife who's just so hooked on pornography. We don't hate that sin, and it allows us um, to continue in it. There's other factors involved, but I certainly think that Paul is right here when he says that repentance is marked by hatred. The sin I formerly loved, I now loathe. That, that, that should be characteristic of us when we repent. 2 Corinthians 7.11 says, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. The next characteristic is fear of God in, in verse 11. That's the reverence and the awe. Uh, 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 what, what fear there is the idea of fear of God. A repentant person is very conscious of God's majesty and holiness. So uh, this, this is something we've, we've talked about already, but that's the difference between remorse and repentance. A remorseful person is thinking about how their sin has affected themselves. Like we said, it's very selfish. Or he might even be thinking about the consequences sin has had on others. Neither is necessarily wrong, but they're not enough. You sin firstly and mostly against God. And we know this. We see this in Psalm 51. Remember David. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You know that David murdered Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. He sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba and others. But his repentance was illustrated by his great awareness that he sinned against God. If you are concerned about how your sin has messed up your own life, you're probably not repentant. If you're mostly upset over how your sin has affected other innocent people, you might not be repentant. You could be repentant, but you might not be repentant. If the way you sin against God is an afterthought to you, you're not repentant. You're just remorseful. Yes, your sin has messed up your life. Yes, your sin has affected others. But your greatest sin is against a holy God. And if you don't get that, if that doesn't bother you, then you're not repentant. You might be sorry you sinned, but it's not going to lead to change. So fear of God is another one. Hatred of sin, sorrow over sin, fear of God. And then eagerness to make things right. Um, 
So verse 11 lists seven words that characterize the Corinthians' repentance. We've discussed two, indignation and fear, but there are five more, and I think they all fit under this heading of an eagerness to make things right. So let me read the, the verse again, and I'll kind of highlight those words and how I read this here. 2 Corinthians 7.11, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So the most notable characteristic of a biblical repentant person in this passage is the desire to make things right. Frankly, if you're very emotional about your sin, if you're seemingly broken about your sin, but you're resisting making things right, that's not a good sign that you're truly repentant. An example of this could be how most men approach marriage problems. So I've, I've not asked Terry this, but I guarantee his experience has been the same as mine, and that is that women are far more interested in getting their marriages right than men are. That, that, it, that, that the per, if, if one spouse comes to you for marriage counseling, it's almost always the woman. Obviously, there's exceptions to that. But, but guys, um, they, they don't like to agree that their marriage problems need the help of another person. The wife is almost more willing to get help than the husband. He doesn't think it's that bad. Or he's not really repentant. And a repentant person doesn't care who knows about his sin. He just wants to get it right. And I think for some of us guys, man, we, we're just so proud that we won't get help. We won't get help. We, we act as if the fact that we have struggles um, makes us unique. We all need the grace of God. If you have a marriage right now that, that in any way resembles what Ephesians 5 says it should resemble, the relationship between Christ and the church, you realize that is a gift of God to you. That's not something you did on your own. That, that, that is always, always God's grace. We're sinners, and it's not surprising that sinners need help. Men have an eagerness to get help with your marriage. Paul says here, produce diligence or earnestness in the Corinthians. This refers to how aggressively they dealt with their sin. It's a, a longing for righteousness. The word can mean to do something quickly with eagerness or devotion. It means to be serious, diligent, or attentive. This is how the Corinthians dealt with their sin. They wanted to make things right. So they had been previously tolerant of this situation in their church. They'd been previously tolerant of the divisiveness of the way they were celebrating the Lord's Supper. And in, when Paul confronted them and they ultimately repented, they, had this, they said, we got to get this right. We got to get this right now. We got to change. We've, we've got to work on this. There was this eagerness in their lives. The next word is translated as eagerness to clear yourselves. It's the eagerness to defend yourself and clear yourself from the blame you deserve. It's not talking about minimizing your sin or the effects of it. Sometimes when, in certain translations, when we read that there, it sounds like maybe this person is justifying their defensiveness. It's not talking about being defensive. It's the desire to remove the stigma of your sin. It involves energetic action to do what is necessary to reconcile. What would be an example of this? I think a repentant person will have a plan of action for change. 
They want to clear themselves, and they prove it by planning how they're going to change their thinking and behavior. It's all in an effort to make things right. So they have an eagerness to, to uh, change, to, to, to um, remove the stigma. This is what they're known for. They have this deserved reputation for this sin, but they want to change that. They want that to be different in their life. The next word is longing. It means to deeply desire something. In this case, the Corinthians wanted to see the matter fixed. They wanted their relationship with Paul restored. Zeal means intensity of involvement or deep concern. This indicates the Corinthians desired to comply with Paul's wishes. They had a willingness to accept the consequences of their sin. They wanted to get it fixed now, not later. And they were willing to accept whatever was necessary to fix it. Worldly remorse is not willing to accept the consequences of its sin. It rationalizes, it blame shifts. That's not repentance. Repentance is characterized by an absence of rationalization. A truly repentant person is always willing to do what's necessary to make it right. They don't get defensive or put up walls. They don't resist advice and help. And then the final word in verse 11, all under this idea of eagerness to make things right, is punishment. It's actually the word justice. It's a desire to see justice done. It's a willingness to make restitution is how we'd think about it. So if you're not willing to make restitution, that's not a good sign that your repentance is genuine. So, so what does godly repentance look like? Well, it looks like an eagerness to make things right. So this passage tells us um, the characteristics of repentance, but it also tells us what it does. What are the results of repentance? And so we find three of those here in this passage, and we'll... we'll um, Look at these here in verses 5 through 10 and actually the end of 13 through 16. Um, 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So sanctification is one of the results of repentance. That makes sense to us. True repentance, of course, leads to salvation for the unbeliever. For believers like the Corinthians that Paul is writing to, it's present spiritual growth or sanctification. True repentance results in moving farther from sin and closer to the Savior. That's what it looks like. So remorse, rather than repentance, leads to a spiritual deadness that pushes one further away from the giver of abundant life, Jesus. Repentance results in a changed life. A Christian is different after this. They're growing in sanctification. So Paul says, here's what repentance looks like. Here's what the results are. And one of the results is sanctification. The second one is reconciliation. What we find in Scripture is repentance is the first step on the road to reconciliation. So I can't guarantee that you will be reconciled with everyone if you repent. But I can guarantee that you won't be if you don't repent because the relationship is still broken. You've done nothing to indicate that you realize your sin was wrong. I think most often, of course, it leads to reconciliation. Um, but it doesn't always guarantee it. Uh, one factor is what Brad Hambrick describes in his book on forgiveness, uh, making sense of forgiveness, moving from hurt toward hope. He says that trust is a proportional virtue as opposed to other virtues. Um, for example, honesty. We wouldn't say that you should be you know, partly honest. We'd say you should always be honest. That's what we would say. Um, but he says uh, um, trust is not like that. It's proportional. And so this is a quote from his book. It is good, in other words, wise, to trust someone in proportion to their trustworthiness. It's foolish or naive to trust someone more than they're trustworthy. So reconciliation sometimes depends on you growing in trustworthiness. Of course, obviously, 
this can get complicated. This could be weaponized by the victim to never forgive you, um, but that's, that's not the idea here. But you think about it, this is sometimes why we struggle with, so someone comes to us, you're, you know, let's, let's imagine a situation where you have a teenage son, uh, he's, a, he's an adult, he's 18 years old, and he just has, he's, he struggles with addiction, and so he's regularly hitting you up for money, and you know what it's going towards, um, and he's getting, in, he's getting in trouble, and so he seems to get right. He seems to get right. And he, he you know, uh, comes to church, and, and he's living back at home now, and he says, hey, Dad, I want to, you know, uh, can, you, can you loan me 500 bucks? I need, and, and you, you can feel like, man, what am I supposed to do here? I, I guess, I guess I'm supposed to loan him the money because, I mean, he seems, he, he says he's repentant. Um, or maybe he wants to borrow the car and he, and he's, you know, uh, uh, wants to, you know, wants to take your car because he doesn't, he doesn't have a car. He ruined his car and you're, uh, I don't, I don't know if should I loan him the car? I mean, I feel like, I guess if I really forgive him, I, I loan him the car. I think this is where Brad Hambrick helps us as he says that this, it's a, it's a proportional virtue. So what you can say in that situation is, man, we are excited about what God is doing in your life. We really are. It is amazing to see the change in you. And as you continue to grow in trustworthiness, we will, con- we will continue to grow in our, our willingness to trust you. But right now, I don't think we can loan you the car. For one, you're not telling us what you're planning, where you're planning to go and how late you're going to be out. And that, those aren't examples of a person who's trustworthy. And so uh, until you reach that, we're, we're going we're gonna to continue to have some restrictions on some of these things. You see how that, that kind of makes sense there? I think Brad Hamrick helps us with that when we, when we understand that. So, so I, my, my point is repentance is the first step on the road to reconciliation, but it might not be the last step. Um, most often... Repentance leads to immediate reconciliation, right? I mean, the, the things we have between us in a, with a husband and wife where I say an unkind word and the spirit convicts me and I go and talk to my wife and she forgives me and we're immediately reconciled. That, that's the way it often works. I recognize as a biblical counselor, as a pastor, or as, as, a, as a, a one with pastoral experience, that life can get very complicated. Some of these situations are really, really difficult to kind of to kind of tease apart and figure out exactly what the next step is. Um, and so for you, repentance is what you need to concentrate on in your own life, expecting that that is the first step that will lead to reconciliation. Sometimes it immediately does. Sometimes you need to grow in trustworthiness before. That, that, that's why a husband who um, has committed adultery his, he's repented, his wife has forgiven him, and he's maybe kind of upset at some of the restrictions. Why does she always got to, why do I got to tell her where I'm going to be every time? You know, if you're, if you're trustworthy, that shouldn't bother you. you. You've earned this level of distrust by your previous sin, and it shouldn't bother you to say, I'm going to call her when I get to work. I'm going to let her on, you know, find my friends on my phone. She's going to be able to know where I'm at all the time. That that's, none of those things should bother you. Um, your, maybe another husband doesn't need those things, but you do to prove your trustworthiness. Um, it's a proportional virtue. So the bottom line is there's no reconciliation without repentance. So Paul here says sanctification, reconciliation, those are results of repentance. Thirdly, 
joy. Now that's a theme of verse 7, verse 9, verse 13, verse 16. And that is unexpected because we don't think of repentance as leading to joy or being a joyful experience. Others experience joy when I repent, but so do I. Unconfessed and unforsaken sin don't do me any good. That's a hard way to live. Remember Psalm 32 that we looked at. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord accounts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. We look at this. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. I wasn't joyful until I repented. Repentance is not ultimately nasty. It's joyful. We started this series by looking uh, at Martin Luther's 95 Theses. And the first one said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. You're not really living a Christian life if you're not also living a life of repentance. So I pray that this week has encouraged you to live a life of repentance. It's good for all of us.